Good evening. My name is Barney, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and yes, I am from Alderson West, by God, Virginia. <laughs> and it's nice to be here tonight. I come back to, uh, I retired about <clears throat> five years ago and uh, bought a, a piece of property back in West Virginia. So I'm back there most of the time. And uh, But I come back out to California in the wintertime because I'm, I'm crazy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> and... Um, so I get the hell away from all that snow and ice and everything. But it's nice to be here again. I haven't been in this club uh, for a long time. It's been, I guess, about five years or so since I was here. I think Tim was saying that he was here with me the last time I was here. And um, I remember coming to Laguna Beach to the Canyon Club when I was about six months sober. Uh, the man who was sponsoring me uh, was... Uh, Coming down here, we used to, uh, they used to have people come down to the Canyon Club, and this is the old Canyon Club, um, and bring a panel. And uh, they would come down with uh, six or seven speakers from uh, L.A. or wherever they were coming from. And uh, he asked me if I'd go to the Laguna Canyon Club and participate in the meeting down there, and I did. And he allowed me to talk about, I think he said I could have two minutes. And uh, so and that was uh, just about 29 years ago. Um, and uh, so I've been coming to the Canyon Club for a long time. And I remember when they built this new club and it's, it's very nice, very fancy place. It's nice. And um, so it's nice to see all of you again. I uh, if you're new here tonight. And there, there were quite a few people that raised their hands. And, and there are quite a number of people here, I suspect, who have a year or less. How many have a year or less? A year or less. Yeah, I'm glad to see you all. Uh, I, um, I don't know how you feel if you're new. But I know that when I was new, my sense was that uh, I was in the wrong place, that I was here by mistake, that I was not really an alcoholic, uh, that somebody had made a terrible mistake, and my, and namely my ex-wife. And because uh, <laughs> she was divorcing me, she called me an alcoholic, and, and I knew that I was not an alcoholic. And uh, I, uh, I didn't like uh, being an AA. I didn't like being in AA meetings. I thought they were boring, and I thought the people were kind of goofy. And, and uh, I, I wasn't interested in whatever was going on here. I knew that, uh, that I did not have a disease. Um, and uh, I, I was willing to admit that my drinking was a little peculiar sometimes, but uh, uh, I didn't really think that I was uh, hooked that badly. And I, like Tim, I thought there, was, there had to be some way that I could that I could uh, get my drinking under control. Um, and uh, but I, you know, here I was being divorced, and uh, and I didn't want to get divorced. We had six children, and. And uh, we had played a lot of Vatican roulette. And uh, <laughs> so uh, so we had these six kids. We were living in Woodland Hills, California at the time. And um, uh, and I was a rather successful guy, I thought. And, uh, I, you know, it seemed to me that you couldn't be an alcoholic and be as successful as I was. I was a television news anchorman. And... Uh, uh, I was making a lot of money, and um, I was uh, had this nice home, and I had uh, uh, six kids, and I had a swimming pool, and I had two cars, and I had uh, a lot of uh, very fancy clothes, and my kids had fancy clothes, and my wife had fancy clothes, and, and uh, I couldn't imagine that uh, anybody uh, like me could possibly be an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism, but I... I just imagined that what an alcoholic was like, and I, I just didn't see myself that way. And um, so uh, I knew that there was no possible way that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous could help me. The main reason I, I knew that I was not an alcoholic is because when I drink, I feel better. <laughs> so I knew that, you know, you couldn't be an alcoholic. I thought, you know, alcoholics were people who drank and Started uh, seeing rats coming out of the walls and cockroaches coming out of the chandeliers. And, and uh, 
hiding bottles and and uh, couldn't hold down a job and and uh, you know wearing long coats and uh, and uh, just kind of huddling in doorways and sleeping in cardboard boxes and and indeed that is true of a lot of alcoholics that I have met. I sponsor a couple of guys that slept in cardboard boxes. I mean, uh, that is true of some people here. But it is certainly not true of everybody in AA. And uh, But I just had this vision of uh, alcoholics uh, that was uh, very screwed up. And um, uh, I, see, I grew up uh, in, uh, in the south side of Chicago in an Irish Catholic neighborhood uh, where... Uh, uh, you didn't have to be Irish, but it sure helped. Um, and my father was Welsh, uh, but my mother was very Irish. She was one of 16 children in an Irish family, and and uh, she was a Flannery. That was her name. And and uh, so I I considered myself Irish, and I told everybody that I was Irish. And the Monsignor who ran that church was Monsignor Patrick J. McGuire. And, uh, and his feast day, of course, was St. Patrick's Day which became the most important day of the year. And um, that's the kind of place it was. And I, the, the Dominican nuns uh, ran that school that I went to. And uh, uh, in those days, you could go to a private uh, school uh, for almost nothing. As a matter of fact, it was a dollar a month. That's what we paid tuition in that school. And we had these wonderful nuns teaching. And, and um, uh, my memory of the nuns is not, I hear people talk about nuns, uh, in a negative way, I, I don't have a negative feeling about those nuns. I think they tried as hard as they could to teach us some values and some standards, in addition to reading, writing, and arithmetic, which they were very good at, uh, to teach us some values and some standards to live by, so that we could, you know, we could live as a happy uh, people, that I could be a happy man, and uh, and I could have a good life. And uh, and and then I went on to a Catholic high school in Chicago, Mount Carmel High School. Uh, on the south side of Chicago, and I had the Carmelite priests there. And I think these men worked very hard to try to give us a set of standards and values to live by so that we would be happy, contented, peaceful people in our lives. And uh, and then my mother used, my dad died when I was 14, and, and my mom used the last of the insurance money to send me to the University of Notre Dame. And uh, I had the Holy Cross Fathers, and... Uh, and I know that they worked very hard to try to give us a set of standards and values to live by uh, so that we could live to be contented, happy people and, 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 and grow to be fine men and, 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 and standards in the community. And they all failed. <laughs> These people screwed up something terrible because uh, <laughs> when I was 21, I was a mess. Uh, when I was 21, I was a frightened, uh, uh, inadequate, uh, uh, terrified little boy uh, who was who was mentally still on the south side of Chicago, mentally still poor, mentally still not with it, mentally not knowing what the hell to do for a living, uh, just absolutely lost in a world that I didn't understand, that I was scared to death. And... Uh, and I was a sinner. And I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner when I was seven years old. Um, matter of fact, I knew that I was a moral leper. That's not only somebody who sins a lot, that's somebody who enjoys it thoroughly. And I knew you weren't supposed to like it that much. I was supposed to feel guilty, and I was supposed to feel a lot of remorse. And the only time I felt guilty is somebody caught me. Because I love sin. I mean, sin is really fun. And, and, uh, and I found a lot of things to sin about. And, uh, and I was, but I was a very confused uh, young man. I, I really had a lot of confusion about uh, everything you could imagine. And I didn't know what, I didn't know how men behaved. I didn't know what you were supposed to do to be a man. I thought it had something to do with being tough. I thought it had something to do with uh, being willing to throw the first punch. Uh, I thought it had something to do with uh, uh, talking loud and being aggressive. And uh, I thought it had something to do with uh, pretending that you were okay even when you weren't. And I know how to do that. And uh, I know how to pretend, as they say, I know how to pretend I got my shit together.
I can pretend that. I can I can look pretty good. Uh, I can act sophisticated and and worldly. And I'm just this little Irish kid from the south side of Chicago uh, who doesn't know what the hell to do with himself. Um, I didn't do any drinking in my younger years to speak of. I had a little bit of drinking. I I didn't like beer and I didn't, the taste of whiskey. My mother was an alcoholic. Uh, she wasn't drunk all the time. She was just drunk part of the time. And um, we didn't know what an alcoholic was. We certainly didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. We didn't know any of that stuff. Um, but I, you know, she sometimes she got very drunk, and she'd roll around on the floor and cry and carry on, and I, it embarrassed me. And I, I, I didn't know what the hell to do about that. But it never dawned on me, never occurred to me that I would ever do anything like that. I mean, people don't behave that way. And uh, well, through a series of uh, really odd coincidences, I ended up in the radio broadcasting business. I had learned a little bit about it at Notre Dame, and, and then I got a little job at a little radio station in Monroe, Michigan, when I came out of school, and and I, uh, I did that, and then I, I went to Toledo, and I became a news director in Toledo, and then I was a news director of a radio station in Detroit, and uh, I had, uh, for some reason or other, I, had, I was 22, 23 years old, and I had guys working for me who were 45 and 50. And uh, I, I was still scared to death. And I thought somebody was going to catch on pretty soon. <laughs> but I'm still bullshitting my way through. And, I, you know, I'm looking good. I know, how to, I know how to look good. I know how to look like I got it together. And uh, now I'm, I'm scared and, I, and I'm, I feel inadequate and I feel like I'm not, I'm not you know, I, don't have, I don't know what to do and and uh, I got married when I was 21, I guess, and started having these kids. And, and uh, uh, I don't know much, much about that either. I don't know much about being a husband. I don't know much about being a father. I don't know much about anything. I'm so dumb, just so dumb. And, and I'm the news director of a major radio station in Detroit by now. And then I went into television and I started to... Uh, doing TV work, and, and, and a lot of changes took place in television right at that period in, in, uh, in the middle 60s. Uh, everybody went full color, and, uh, you know, from black and white to color, we went from magnetic uh, optical sound to magnetic stripe film. Uh, we went to, uh, and then ultimately we went to minicam and videotape real fast, and satellite trucks, and Jesus, everything changed. Within a period of about 10 years, everything rolled around, and uh, God, it all changed. The electronics changed and everything changed. And I was, I was there. I was working through all of that process. And uh, every time they, you know, we went from typewriters to computers. And Jesus, I mean, it was just nutsy. And uh, I was still a frightened little boy. Now, somewhere in my early 20s, I made a magic discovery. And I think it's a discovery that sooner or later every alcoholic has to make. And it's such a simple thing. Nobody ever pays much attention to it when it happens. Uh, somebody ought to put a plaque on the wall, but nobody ever does. Uh, it just, it's just one night it happens. And, you, and, you, and you, it just goes by, and here it is. No matter how I feel, no matter what's going on in my life, if I'm up or down, if I'm happy or sad, if I feel bright or stupid, Whatever's going on in my life, when I drink, I feel better. <laughs> it is such a simple, it's, it's just nobody ever notices. It just happens. Now, it turns out, I feel so good when I drink that I want a lot. <laughs> Because I somehow am convinced in my own mind that if I drink more, it's going to get better and better and better and better. Well, it doesn't, as we all know. But it does get pretty good. And it's a lot of fun. And, and I somehow, I feel like a million dollars. A few drinks that I'm right on top of the world. A few drinks that I am brighter than you. A few drinks that I'm the most intelligent guy in the room. A few drinks that I'm certainly the most handsome. 
a few drinks and I'm the slickest guy going. A few drinks. I mean, it just magically turns me into something really marvelous in my own brain. And uh, so I drink a lot. And uh, and I and I get drunk, of course. Uh, and I, here's the thing. When I get drunk, I have a tendency to move around a lot. I, I travel quite a bit. Uh, I go from bar to bar. Uh, I go from city to city. I go from country to country. I just move around a lot. Uh, I don't remember things. I have a tendency to forget. I forget where my car is. I forget what I'm doing. I forget who I'm with. I forget. Forget. I just can't remember. I just, I go through these periods of time that I kind of lose time. I lose a day. I lose two days. Uh, I, well, just as an example, I can remember, uh, I woke up in the airport in Kingston, Jamaica. On a, turns out it was a Saturday afternoon. And the last thing I can remember was having a couple of drinks in a bar in Detroit Friday night. <laughs> now, that would be all right if it happened once. But it happened to me a lot. And you wake up in all these strange places, and you can't remember where the hell you are. And it's, uh, it's embarrassing, and uh, you don't want to ask. <laughs> And you finally figure it out, and you, and you, you know, you manage to get home, and and uh, and and of course the first question is, where have you been? <laughs> They've been calling from work. You know, if you anchor the news and you don't show up, they notice. <laughs> they just expect you to be there every goddamn day. It's a, I mean, you're under pressure that way, and it's just. God, it's awful, and uh, and I don't know how to explain uh, my behavior. I don't know how to, uh, I don't know what to say. I, you know, because I, because I ain't going on these trips alone. <laughs> Most of the time, I have company, and uh, and my only hope, of course, uh, most of the time, is that she's got her own credit card. <laughs> But I spend huge amounts of money uh, trying to impress people I don't even know. And uh, it turns out I spend, most of the time, I spend about 10% more than I make. And it doesn't make any difference how much I make, because I'll tell you what, uh, by the time I was 27 or 28 years old, I was making a lot of money. And, uh, and I was having a good time. And they were, ABC was flying this other guy and I into New York, and we were being uh, uh, wined and dined. Uh, in the Leonard Goldenson suite at uh, the, the New York Hilton Hotel, and we were being taken up to the top of the, the Black Tower there on the Avenue of the Americas, and they put us in this big auditorium. I'm 27 years old, 28 years old, and we're lecturing the suits. We used to call them the suits. These are the guys who are sales guys and advertising guys from all over the country would come in, and they'd sit in this auditorium, and we would lecture these guys on how we got such great ratings in Detroit. And we had no idea. <laughs> but we would tell them anyway. We made stuff up. And they took notes. And uh, those were wild times. And uh, it was, that's uh, my bookie, tell them... Uh, <laughs> I'm giving the 14 points, Tom. And, uh, oh, the Super Bowl's over. Uh, so, that's what I was. And uh, so we're working hard. The ratings are great. We're making a ton of money. And I'm drunk all the time. Just drunk. Night after night after night after night. And uh, just roaring around, having a hell of a time. And uh, I can only tell you that by the time I was 30, I began to get very tired. And uh, it became harder and harder to function.
it became harder and harder to go down and sit in that studio and have them turn those goddamn lights on you. And you just want to melt. And it, was get, it got, got harder and harder to read the copy. It got harder and harder to convince people that I was okay. Because by this time, I'm getting a reputation for being a real bad drunk. And, but the ratings are good. So they're not going to fire me. Uh, they, they just lectured me a lot. And uh, when I'm 35, my wife divorces me because she thinks I'm an alcoholic. And I know that I'm not an alcoholic. I'm too successful to be an alcoholic. I got underwear with my initials on it. <laughs> How can I be an alcoholic? <laughs> and... Uh, I, I, I went on, got drunk one night, and I called this guy. And uh, this is a guy that, I, that had told me some months before that he was an alcoholic. He said it right out, like he was real proud of it. And, uh, and he said, uh, you call me if you uh, ever think you got a problem. <laughs> so I called him. Not because I thought I had a problem. i got to get this woman to drop the divorce. i got a bullshitter, and she ain't buying my bullshit too much anymore. I've been married to her 14 years. She now knows all the stories. And I don't know what to say to her to get her to drop this divorce. And I call this guy. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. That's not why I'm calling you. And he said, yes, I know. Social drinkers call me all the time at 3 in the morning. <laughs> he said, what do you want? I said, well, I've been thinking. And what I'm thinking is if I don't drink for about six months, that... Uh, She'll drop this divorce, and I can get back to what I consider normal living. And uh, But I got a bullshitter pretty good here for about six months. Now, I can stay sober for about a week when I'm really pushing it. But after that, I get real nervous. See, I have this problem. It's not drinking problem. When I drink, I feel better. It's when I quit drinking and I go on the wagon. That's when I get nervous. I get nervous and edgy and irritable and crazy, and I can't function. And that's when I ain't drinking. I have what I would describe as a horrible sobriety problem. And I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do with that. And the guy said, well, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, uh, we just do this thing a day at a time. I said, no, I need about six months. <laughs> One day, she ain't going to buy that shit. <laughs> six months. And he said, well, <clears throat> Barney, I haven't had a drink actually in four and a half years. And I said, well, my problem's not quite that severe. <laughs> I don't need that kind of time. I need about six months. This was the first conversation I was to have with this man of many conversations because he became my sponsor. And we were to have many conversations that were the same as that. That is, I would talk to him about what I was feeling and thinking, and he would say something back to me that would indicate he hadn't been listening. <laughs> and he did it all the time. He starts taking me to these stupid meetings which were just god-awful. We'd go to these meetings, and it was the same crap. Every night, somebody would get up there and lead the meeting, be real happy and joyful and free, and, uh, and, uh, and then they would, uh, oh, call on people to read, and they'd read the same crap out of that book every night. Like they couldn't remember it. <laughs> Chapter 5 and how it works. And then they would call on people to read who weren't very good at it. And then they would applaud. Oh, George is going to read Chapter 5, isn't that one? Jesus. And then they read these traditions. I had no idea what the hell that was all about. But they seemed really important to these people. They read every night. They read them. 
I thought they must do that to see if the newcomers can pronounce anonymity. I don't know what. <laughs> and then when they can't, they laugh at them. You know, it's the same. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't have the slightest idea what's going on. They're reading all these steps. They're talking about God. I don't know. And then you get people getting up the podium and they talk about all their marriages and their divorces and their jails and their hospitals and their institutions. Jesus. It just goes on and on and on. This litany of horrible things that happen to these people. <laughs> and I don't identify with any of that crap. And people are saying, have you identified yet? And I'd say, no. And I don't expect to. I'm not like these people. There wasn't an anchor man in the bunch. Nobody like me. And we go to these meetings, we go to these meetings, and we go to the meetings. And then I said to this man who was my sponsor, oh, one night I, I thought I could help these people a little bit, and I, I, I went up to this woman who seemed to be in charge of this meeting, and I said, you know, I notice uh, you folks read out of your blue book there every night. And you seem to read pretty much the same stuff. And uh, there is a lot of great literature that's been written over the centuries. <laughs> Prose and poetry. Things that would be very inspirational to these people, I'm sure. And I could bring it in here for you. And I notice a lot of the people that are reading are not very good at it. On the other hand, I am. <laughs> so I could read this stuff and... Be something new for these folks, you know. They must get awful bored with this crap. And uh, she said, how long have you been sober? I said, about two weeks. She said, well, I'll tell you what. I need, uh, I need a floor mopper. I said, you need a what? She said, we need somebody to mop the floors. After the meeting, oh, no. I said, oh, God. And I, I, I went back to my sponsor and I said, how do we write to New York to report that bitch? <laughs> She's trying to kill newcomers. He said, what are you talking about? I said, she wants me to mop the goddamn floors. And he said, oh, that'd be a good thing for you. I said, why? He said, well, I don't think you should ever ask me that question. Just do what I'm telling you to do, and mopping the floors will help you stay sober. I said, I don't understand how. He says, just do it. So I started mopping the floors there on the left side of Ohio Street every Tuesday night. Actually, I got pretty good at it, and, and uh, I was finishing my side quicker than the guy on the other side. <laughs> and, and my side was cleaner. So every Tuesday night, I'd finish, you know, and I'd go, I got you again, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I never told him there was a race, but you got to keep an edge, you know. <laughs> That's the way I used to amuse myself. Uh, I'd sit in the back of meetings and mock speakers and make fun of everybody. And uh, I thought the birthday cakes were really ridiculous. And then after I'd been hanging around here about six months, uh, I, the thought occurred to me, because I hadn't had a drink in six months. And I, I thought, I wonder if I could get one of them cakes. If I could get a year, I could get a cake. And I could make a speech. <laughs> yeah. And I could tell these people what a bullshit thing this is. And that I don't like their book. It's badly written. It's a bunch of crap. I don't work their steps. I don't believe in God. And, and I've, had, I've studied theology for 16 hours at Notre Dame, and I don't believe in God. So I can tell them why I don't believe in God. I could lay that one on them. But I could tell them I stayed sober anyway. And they could stick that. <laughs> So I sat in the back plotting my speech. <laughs> night after night after night, I sat there and I thought about that speech. And I kept adding things and subtracting things. And I thought, I'm really going to tell these people. 
And, uh, and then I had this spiritual experience. I sit in a meeting one night, and this tall redhead walked by. <laughs> and she had this gorgeous, long red hair. And she had these long legs. She had the greatest legs in North America. And, uh, and I knew she could help me. <laughs> so I started chasing her around the meetings, and I, 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 I went to a lot of meetings just to see those legs. I hated meetings, but I would go to see those legs. And, uh, you know, I'd walk a mile for a camel. I'd walk a mile to see those legs. And uh, I, I tr- kept trying to get her to go out with me, and she wouldn't go out with me. She had three years sobriety. And she said, I don't date newcomers. And I said, well, I'm new now, but I'll be old later. How about coffee? <laughs> Try a little something here. And uh, one night she said, how many children do you have? I said, well, I have six, but they're very small. You'd hardly notice them. Just <laughs> See, I, in a way, trying to threaten my wife, I had said to her one night, if you don't drop this divorce, I'm going to get the best lawyer in Beverly Hills, and I'm going to demand custody of the six children. I thought that would scare her a little bit. She said, you can have them, and she left. <laughs> So I'm living in this apartment in Santa Monica with my six kids, the oldest of whom was 12, and the little one was about a year. And I'm trying to go to meetings, and I'm trying to work, and I'm trying to function, and I'm half crazy. And I hired a lady to take care of the kids, and I didn't speak very good Spanish, and her English wasn't very good, so I couldn't explain to her that I couldn't pay her. But... I figured, you know, a couple of weeks and she'll leave and I'll get another woman and that's the way it'll go. And, but she stayed. I don't know. She wouldn't go away, that woman. And uh, finally, after about a month, I came up with some money and I paid her. And her sister came over. Her sister spoke pretty good English. And I, I said, ask her, how come she stayed when I didn't pay her? And she asked her and she said, because she really likes your kids. I said, God, it's amazing. And uh, so that woman stayed with us for a long time. And... Uh, um, I went to meetings, and I hated the meetings, and I, the book to me was just so stodgy, and, and so, God, it had it been written in 1939, and I thought, you know, this is old-fashioned stuff. It, it, it read a little bit, I thought, like it had been written by a, an Episcopalian from Vermont. <laughs> Turns out it was written by an Episcopalian from Vermont. <laughs> but I just, uh, I, I hated the meetings and I hated the book and I hated everything that was going on. I, I, some of the speakers were kind of funny and, and uh, I really was attracted to this redhead. That's why I don't think motivations matter. See, I, I don't care what your motives are. If you're in here for all the wrong motives, that's fine. That made a difference. The trick here is listen to me if you're new, okay? Put your ass in the chair and leave your head outside every night. That's it. There is no other advice. I'm, I'm going to talk here for 45 minutes. That's the most important thing I'm going to tell you. Put your ass in the chair and leave your head outside. Because your motives don't matter here. And, and, and in my opinion, this is not an intellectual exercise. There's nothing to be learned here. There, there is, it's not like you're going to come in here and take notes and learn something intellectually and then know something. We do not have a chapter entitled Into Thinking. <laughs> we got one called Into Action. What does that mean? It means mop floors. It means make coffee. It means stack chairs. It means participate. It means if somebody asks you to read or participate in an AA meeting, say yes. That's all. You don't have to like it. Just say yes. Because you're saving your own ass. I mean, I see people all the time in AA meetings. We, we have a problem. We have a La Jolla meeting on Saturday nights. And we have two 10-minute speakers. And we have a hell of a time trying to get two people to talk for 10 minutes. Oh, I don't think I want to do that. Who gives a shit what you want? You do it anyway. 
You don't have to. You know, it doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you think. Thinking got you here. Action will keep you here. Chuck Chamberlain, who was a wonderful guy in AA, used to say, I don't believe that you can think your way to good actions. And I certainly don't think you can think your way sober. He said, but you can act your way to better behavior. You can act your way to better thinking, ultimately. But action is the magic word. You just got to do it. It's like my sponsor used to say, don't come to a meeting and tell me how you feel. Don't come to a meeting and tell me what you think. Come to the meeting and tell me what you did today to participate in your own sobriety. Did you call an alcoholic? Did you read the book? Did you go to a meeting? Did you call your sponsor? Did you try to help some newcomer? Well, I'm a newcomer. So what? Somebody's newer than you. If you got one day, you tell the guy that just walked in the door how you got the one day. That's what you do. We share our experience, strength, and hope. That's what we do here. So if you're new, you turn around and get the person that's newer and give them your phone number and get them to call you. Somebody's newer than you. If you got one day, you tell the guy that just walked in the door how you got the one day. That's what you do. <laughs> and you get a commitment from the newcomer to say, finally, well, yeah. Because <laughs> he's sure you want something. And you get him to do that. And that's, and, and I, I worked with a lot of new people my first year. I sponsored people in my first year. And they all got drunk. Every damn one of them. And I finally gave up on it because I knew I wasn't helping anybody. And I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Because everybody I'm working with is getting drunk. And finally when I was three years sober, I almost got drunk. By that time I'd gone to work for CBS in Philadelphia. Make it a ton of money, successful as hell, uh, not going to meetings, because who needs meetings when you're three years over? And uh, a guy and my wife was divorcing me. I married the redhead, by the way, when I was a year and a half sober. And she had two kids and we're raising these eight kids. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and... Uh, and a guy said to me one night, a guy had 18 years of sobriety, and he said to me, he said, how's it going? I said, would you really like to know? He said, yeah. And I told him, I said, it's not, my life is not good. I'm here trying to be successful. I'm trying to get the ratings up. I'm trying to make a career here. Uh, but I don't like the AA here. And I don't like the way they do their meetings. They're very different from California. And uh, they don't read Chapter 5, for Christ's sake. And... Uh, <laughs> They don't read the traditions, and, and they don't have birthdays here, and they don't have birthday cakes. They call them anniversaries. And if you sponsor somebody, they don't call them babies. They call them pigeons. And I said to a guy one night, I said, how come you call them pigeons? He says, that's kind of what they do to you. Yeah. So the guy, it was all different. To, I, I just thought, Jesus, I can't do this. I can't deal with this. And uh, I said, my wife, you know, I, I married this girl, and, uh, and she's got these two kids, and we've got these eight kids, and I'm half crazy. And some of the kids are drinking and using drugs, which I thought was kind of unfair. And, uh, <laughs> and I was just nuts. And the guy said, well, how many meetings do you go to? And I said, well, I don't have time for meetings, for Christ's sake. I'm trying to be successful here in my career. And... Uh, he said, how many newcomers do you work with? And I said, I'm no good at that. I tried my first year, and they all got drunk. He said, uh, what are you doing about the third step? I said, oh, well, I don't believe in God. Hard to do that one. He said, well, uh, I think you got to go to meetings whether you like them or not. I think you got to go to the meetings and just put your ass in the chair and shut up. Don't, you don't have to explain to them that you've been sober three years. Just shut up. And uh, and I think you got to have to do something about newcomers. You got to you got to try to give your phone number to newcomers. And uh, he said, I think you need to.
do something about the third step. I said, like what? He said, well, we got a prayer in our book here for guys like you. It's the third step prayer. And I didn't know that. And he pointed it out to me. My sponsor says, if you want to hide anything from an alcoholic, put it in the big book. (laughs) And there it was. There was that prayer. (laughs) And I said, oh, yeah, okay. He said, now, he said, why don't you just do that like you mop floors or make coffee or stack chairs? Just do it. You don't have to believe nothing. He said, "Just, just say a phony prayer. I said, to a phony God? He said, yeah, of course. I said, oh, I could do that? He said, sure. I said, well, I could do that. So I started saying a phony prayer to a phony God. And I'm going to meetings, and I'm grabbing newcomers and threatening them. (laughs) And some of them stayed sober, and I don't know what the hell to do with them when they're sober. They're in your living room. They're in your kitchen. They're on the phone. They won't leave you alone. What meeting are we going to tonight? Say, <laughs> so what do you mean, we? You're the newcomer. God damn it, leave me alone. <laughs> and they, you know, then they embarrass you. They come to the meeting, you know, and you're, you're trying to look like a good sponsor. And they come up and say things like, how do you work step three? <laughs> sort of embarrassing when you got to say, I don't know. I never tried that one. <laughs> Finally, the only thing I knew to do with these people was to sit down with them and tell them the truth, which is a painful thing for me to do because I'm trying to look good and I'm trying to be smooth and I'm trying to be slick and I can't do that because nothing's working for me. So I sit down and I say, look, let me explain something to you. I don't like Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? I don't like these damn meetings. I think the book is badly written. The steps are bullshit. I don't believe in God. And to be honest with you, I don't even like you. (laughs) The only reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because somebody told me it would help me. (laughs) And the people I sponsor are very sick. They say, oh, I really identify with you. I have finally come to the conclusion that you don't have to be very bright to sponsor people. I believe this. I think sponsorship is so simple that it almost escaped me. It turns out that the principal job of a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous is just to keep the baby amused. Keep amused until AA works. And I know how to keep amused. Go mop floors, make coffee, stack chairs, get involved. I know how to do that. Call me every day, goddammit. I know how to do that. And ultimately and finally what happens is that AA works. It works in their lives magically in a way that I couldn't even imagine. And... uh now I got babies that explain it to me. They love to do that. Well, let me explain the steps to you. But that's just the way it is. And uh, I got fired from that job. And I came back to California. And I went to work in San Diego. And I found out the AA was different there, too. Jesus, everywhere I go, it's different. And I I started a meeting in Philadelphia. I started a meeting in San Diego. Then I started another meeting in San Diego. And uh, the other night, somebody asked me to come down and talk at that meeting that I started in downtown San Diego. That damn meeting is going to be 25 years old. And and I went and talked there the other night. It blows my mind when I thought about it. I thought, oh, my God, this meeting is going to be 25 years old. And... uh, and, and they're still using the same podium that was made by a guy who volunteered to make this podium when we were, when the meeting was a couple of months old. And they've still got that same podium. He's dead now. The guy's been dead for a number of years. That damn podium's still going. That's the way it is at AA. We die, but the program goes on. 
And uh, Carol and I have, over the years, have, uh, Jesus, I tell you, we, we, just, we just turned 28 years marriage. And um, it ha- she's in West Virginia, and I'm here in California. It seems to work better that way. <laughs> but I sent her, for our anniversary, I sent her 28 roses. And, uh, and uh, she stuck them out. They had a hell of a snowstorm that day. So she stuck the roses out in the snowstorm and, in the snow and took a picture of it and sent it to me. But uh, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, we've, she and I have fought and argued and hollered a, a lot. And a lot of our kids have screwed up over the years. And, and just some of them don't even talk to us now. For reasons that have nothing to do with us, they just don't talk to us. They're mad at one another. And so they don't talk to us. I mean, you explain that one to me. Kids, I tell you. Third step. Oh. When I was 16 years sober, I was driving from San Diego to L.A., which I do a lot when I'm out here. And I had a tape on in the car. And it happened to be a Chuck C. tape. Now, I never understood Chuck C. in the early days. I used to hear him talk, and I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And uh, I'm listening to this tape. And, I, and all of a sudden, I'm understanding what he's saying. Because now I'm 16 years sober. And it's making more sense to me than it did when I was two years sober. And I'm, and I'm listening to the tape, and I'm talking to the tape, which is a little crazy. I'm talking to a tape, and the tape, and the guy's dead. Now, that's nutsy. And I'm going, yeah, Chuck, that's right. Yeah, you got that set. Yeah, that's it. And I'm going along the freeway, and yeah, that's right, Chuck. One of the things he said was, Something I had heard him say before, and I never really locked in on it. He said, I believe the first two words of the Our Father mean exactly what they say. I believe that the first two words of the Our Father mean exactly what they say. Our Father. Ooh. He's my father? Oh. And I'm his son. Ooh. And that's spooky. He's my dad, and I'm his kid. Oh, my God. He's my dad, and I'm his kid. Well, what's my relationship like with my kids? Not so good sometimes. Have they always done everything I wanted them to do? Certainly not. Have they sometimes been a real pain in the ass? Of course. Have we fought and argued and screamed, those kids and I? Yes, over the years. Yes, a lot. Have I sometimes just been so angry with them I could just kill them? Yeah. Have I ever stopped loving them? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's not because consciously I want to love them. Sometimes I don't. I can't help it. They're my kids. I'm their dad, and they're my kids. And so I love them. I love them when they hate me. I love them when they don't speak to me. I love those kids. It's an involuntary thing. But I do love them. Oh, well, wait a minute now. If he's my dad and I'm his kid, have I always done everything he wanted me to do? No. I'm a moral leper. I told you that. Have I often in my life been a real pain in the ass to him? Sure. Has he probably been very angry with me many times? Yeah. Has he ever stopped loving me? Well, I guess not. If he's my dad. And I, I've come to the conclusion that he is. I've come to the conclusion that he's my dad and I'm his kid and I talk to him that way. And that's our relationship. And I think he loved me when I was drinking and I think he loved me when I was doing all the rotten things I was doing to people. Because I am a user and an abuser of people. I really am. I am a very self-centered, egotistical, no-good son of a bitch. Trust me. (laughs) Has he ever stopped loving me through any of that process? I don't think so. Like he loved me then, I think he loves me now. And that's the relationship that we have, and that's the way I talk to him. And that's my relationship. I have come to believe, come, (laughs) To believe that a power greater than myself, oh, 
can restore me to sanity. I don't think he's done it yet, but I think he can. <laughs> and so I, uh, I just keep coming to these dumb meetings and, and, uh, and, and talking to drunks. Because I think AA is essentially just one drunk talking to another drunk. I, th- I think, you know, AA is not a, AA is not the book. AA is not the steps. AA is not the meetings. AA is not praying. AA is not intellectual. AA, in its essence, is one drunk talking to another drunk so that the second drunk gets it and finally goes, oh, oh, yeah, I've done that. Uh." One drunk talking to another drunk. And so that's what we're doing, you know, since 1935, when two guys started this thing with one drunk talking to another drunk, that's what we've been doing here. That's what we're doing now. That's what we're doing at this very moment. And uh, if you're new, I, I wish you well. I hope that you will come back tomorrow night to some meeting. I hope you will put your ass in the chair. You don't need your head in here. You don't need to think about it. Just put your fanny in the chair. And ultimately, through a series of actions that probably you don't even want to take, that you don't understand, that don't make any sense to you, you take a whole series of actions and ultimately... Your emotions quiet down. They go, when you come in here, you know, your emotions are kind of like that. You're high and you're low and you're high and you're low. And after you take certain actions over a period of time, your emotions kind of get more like that. It's never like that because you're dead then. When it's like And after your emotions quiet down for a while, you begin to understand a little bit about why you've been doing it all this time. There's a man sitting here in the front row who's been doing this for 54 years. I think AA works. If I don't drink between now and May 25th, I'm going to be sober 30 years. And I, and I, I don't take any credit for that. I honestly do not. My sense is that being with you, being willing to drive from San Diego to Laguna Beach on a Saturday night and come here and talk to the lepers, (laughs) being willing to participate and be in the same room with you, just to be in the same room with you. Because God is in here with us, whether you believe in God or not, doesn't make you never see He is or He isn't, so don't worry about that. He's in here. And He's in here with us. And we are together, sharing the same disease and sharing a common solution. And the solution seems to be one drunk talking to another drunk. God bless you.